Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X-Fi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of February 17th, 2020. Everyone has reported to Glendale, Arizona for the Chicago White Sox as we are getting video of pitchers rowing Hitters taking batting practice over the weekend. We are just five days away from the first spring training game. How exciting is that? As we march closer to the start of the 2020 season, we continue our position previews. Patrick Nolan will be joining me later in the show to preview the Chicago White Sox bullpen. Ranked 15th in Major League Baseball last year. What kind of adjustments... Can the White Sox relievers make to become a top 10 unit in 2020? And who will win the open eighth man spot in the bullpen? Jim Margulis will join me at the end of the show to answer your questions in P.O. Sox. Luis Robert will be reporting to camp this week along with Edwin Encarnacion. And during spring training, there will be a lot of eyes on Luis Robert as thanks to his projection systems. Uh, Robert has some really lofty expectations to meet in his rookie season. Can he meet them? Oh, and college baseball season has also begun, which means our 2020 Major League Baseball draft coverage begins on Sox Machine. Who are the best draft prospects to follow this upcoming college and prep season? Well, let's ask our guest, who is one of our best friends of the show from MLB.com. It's Jim Callis. And hello, Jim. Thanks for coming on the show again. And great job calling the Michigan Vanderbilt game this past Friday. Uh, thanks. That, that was a, that was a lot of fun. Um, you know, we're talking a little bit before I, we we start recording. I, I love working with Stephen Nelson and Dan O'Dowd. Uh, Stephen's a lot of fun. Dan, just working with him on broadcasts, like whether it's the draft or, or, or various prospect shows or, or, or games, 
like you could tell like he prepares like he's still a GM. I mean, he was you know, he, he was his his level of preparation. I mean, I do a lot of prep too. And I think Dan is kind of like me in that like he would rather over prepare and and have too much, but like he puts a lot of time into it. And it's just fun. And it was nice this year. We got a great game. Unlike last year's debacle where it was a blowout by the fourth inning and it was like, okay, how are we going to fill the next 5 innings in 2 hours? But it was a you know, ninth inning home run and it was a cool moment. You know, the guy who hit the game-winning home run off one of the best hit closers in the country, Matt Schmidt is the son of longtime Rocky scouting director Bill Schmidt, who I've, I've known for years, and is I think he is the longest serving scouting director in, in Major League Baseball, and kind of underrated because he's not a guy who, who who makes a lot of public proclamations. You know, very quiet guy, but great scouting director. So it was kind of a neat moment, and I think even neater for Dan because Dan worked with Bill Schmidt in Cleveland for several years, and then brought him to when when Dan got hired as Rockies GM, he brought Bill over as the scouting director. So they're, I mean, they're, they're super close friends, and it was kind of funny. I don't know if you, you stuck around for the, the post-game interview where we talked to Matt Schmidt hitting the dramatic ninth-inning home run, and, you know, a guy who hadn't really played a whole lot of college baseball. He'd been on the bench at Texas and Michigan for two years and played a year at Cypress. But, um, like, <laughs> it was funny because we were asking questions, and when Dan asked Matt Schmidt a question, Matt re- Matt replied to him as Mr. O'Dowd, which we all got a good kick out of. <laughs> um, you know, because, I, mean, I, I mean, I think Dan probably has known – Matt, you know, probably from the time he was born. So it, it was just a very cool moment, very, very cool game, you know, dramatic game. And then Vanderbilt had the bases loaded with two outs in the ninth, um, down by one, and couldn't quite tie it up. But yeah, no, it was, it was fun. It's, it's, it was a brief reprieve, uh, leaving uh, cold Chicago land for uh, a day or two in Arizona to watch a game. And that was fun. Yeah, I'm quite jealous. But we'll get back to the Major League Baseball draft in a moment. But I want to discuss the top White Sox prospects with you, which you can find on MLB.com slash pipeline as the top 100 list has been released. And for the White Sox, it obviously starts with Luis Robert. Bakota's median projection for baseball prospectus is projecting 30 home runs from Luis Robert in 2020. Zips believes that Robert will be a 20 home run, 20 stolen base player in 2020. And MLB.com has Robert as the third overall prospect behind Wander Franco and Gavin Lux. Jim, what are you projecting for Luis Robert in his rookie season? Yeah, I mean, I, I think he's he's got to be the favorite right now to be American League Rookie of the Year. Uh, you know, we know he's a, a great talent, and I can never remember was a guaranteed rate field still. It is a great place to hit. Um, if that, I don't know if they changed the name again recently. I don't know if you saw, we had uh, our MLB Pipeline Twitter account was trying to drum up a little interest uh, last week, or beginning of the week, and they asked fans, you know, hey, which players on the top 100 prospects list will have the most of uh, various statistical categories? And then my editor's like, hey, respond to that, get some people to respond. And, um, and I, I projected Luis Robert with 33 homers and 290 total bases. So, um, not that I had a, a complicated uh, algorithm that developed those numbers. But no, I mean, look, I mean, the guy, it's my standard line on Luis Robert is, I don't know if there's another prospect who can match his combination of bat speed and foot speed. And he tore it up last year at three levels. You know, it, you know, pretty amazing. You know, looking back, I mean, he was hurt, but like he didn't hit a home run in 2018. And then he goes 30-30, the youngest 30-30 player since 1999 last year in the minors. 
led the minors in total bases and was the first 30-30, 300 total base guy since Jose Carnal in 1961. I mean, it was, it was a historic season. Like, we hadn't seen a season like that in, what, uh, 40, 58 years. My math was off there. But, um, no, I, I think he's going to do very well. The, the, the one concern, I think, with, with Robert, where, you know, maybe it, it could get him some trouble is, you know, I think he still needs to kind of improve his his command of the strike zone. You know, he he struck out almost five times as much as he walked last year, um, and if that continues in, in in the majors, I think it'll it'll keep him down. But I, I mean, to me, 30 home runs seems like a a pretty reasonable expedi- ex- uh, expectation for him when you look at the fact that you know, and, and I do I do think Eloy Jimenez is a well. I think Eloy Jimenez is a better offensive prospect than Luis Robert. Like I, I, but I think Robert obviously has more all-around tools. But Eloy was hurt and inconsistent <laughs> and missed a quarter of the season, and he had 31 home runs last year. So, yeah, I, I think, I, you know, if he stays healthy, I would expect Robert's going to be, you know, somewhere in the 30-home run territory. You know, the, the one caveat being, you know, who knows what they're going to do to the baseball, and if they try to somehow dial it back and they dial it back too much and the homers are down, you know, maybe Robert's more of a 25-homer guy. But I, I just don't see if he's in the lineup, which he will be because he signed the contract and they don't have to play service time games, how he's not going to hit a bunch of home runs. I mean, do you feel like those those expectations are, you know, somewhere between zips and – and uh, the I forget what the first projection. Oh, Pakoda, but somewhere between Zips and Pakoda seems very reasonable to me. I I'm just scared, Jim. <laughs> I just want him to do so well because you know we've been watching him ever since the White Sox signed him, and hoping for the best. And for the White Sox, you know, Yohan Makata he struggled the first 200 games with the White Sox, and as you mentioned with Eloy Jimenez, he struggled in the first half before getting healthy and really turning it on later in the second half of the season. I- I'm expecting bumps in the road. Like, if he hit 20 home runs, I'd be I'd be content. But when I hear you say 33 home runs, and Vakoda's thinking 30 home runs as his median projection, <laughs> I-, I guess I need to ramp up my expectations a little bit, raise the bar. Uh, and that just obviously creates more excitement. Well, I think what makes it easier for him, a little bit easier for him too, is this isn't like, when Mankata, everybody was looking for Mankata, hey, we just traded Chris Sale for this guy, and this guy's going to be our savior. And, you know, you know, never mind that we're asking him to kind of learn a new position on the fly. And, you know, maybe he's being rushed a little bit. I mean, you're, you're talking about putting him in a lineup that's going to have Mankata and Jimenez and Anderson and Jose Abreu's back, and they added Encarnacion and, and Grandal. Like, you know, Luis Robert isn't coming in and being asked, like, hey, we need you to carry this lineup. If he can be... I mean, I think internally the expectation probably would be like, okay, we need Luis Robert to be our sixth or seventh best hitter because we've got a lot of big guys in the lineup. So, you know, my my guess is, I mean, he'll probably open the season batting in the bottom of third of the lineup, wouldn't he? Yeah, I agree with that. I think eventually he could be the leadoff hitter if they are still struggling finding a consistent bat. I don't think he walks enough. Like, I I have more faith in Yohan Mankata walking than I do in Luis Robert walking. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny because, you know, obviously there's a lot of expectations for this year's team. I, I think the White Sox have had a, a great off season, just in terms of, you know, yeah, they didn't get a 300 million dollar player like they they tried to last year with, with Machado, but they, they 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 filled several holes, and I think they not only got talented players, but they get guys who. 
I was forgetting the guy they trade from Mazzara too. So there's another guy. Um, but you know, they they got players who I think have won, have experienced success, can be lead. You know, guys like like I think Dallas Keuchel. I don't mean to bring this guy's name up on a White Sox podcast because it's bad memories. But I think Dallas Keuchel can be to the White Sox what James Shields was to the Royals. Um, you know, I think Grandall. You know, I mean, that guy's had a lot of success. You know, he's won. And Carnacio's been on winning teams. And I, and I think you have veterans who've won, and that if you have a team that, that's contending for the first time in a while, ha- having guys around who, who have been there, done that, helps. Um, I, I just think they've had a really nice offseason with, 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 you know, getting a bunch of guys like that. And, and so, uh, you know, it'll be fun to kind of watch what this team does. But I was going to say the one thing uh, – you know, the, the the team obviously looks as strong on paper as it has in a while. I, I don't know if if really too many of the regulars are suited to bat leadoff. I mean, I don't right. think any of the guys who were on the club last year walked in even 10% of their plate appearances. Um, you know, those guys don't walk. You know, Robert's not a guy who's who's walked a lot. Um you know, so I, I, that's why I don't see him leading off. I mean, you know, Grandall has, you know, very good patience at the plate. I mean, it's weird. I mean, in terms of just getting on base, and I don't think they're going to do this, Grandall's probably the guy who should be leading off. Um, you know, Encarnacion, you know, so you have Grandall's, like, by far the best walk rate in the team, and then Encarnacion second, and again, I mean, Kudos to the White Sox for realizing a deficiency and going out and signing a couple guys who walk. But even, and I'm sure we'll talk about it in a second, like Nick Madrigal, who is probably the best bat-to-ball guy. Well, not even probably. He is the best bat-to-ball guy anywhere in the minor leagues. He makes such contact just so easily that he doesn't walk. You know, it's not that he's a wild swinger, but, like, it's hard to throw four balls to Nick Madrigal before he can, like, you know, put a line drive and play somewhere. Right. Yeah, that's going to be one of the the key things watching during camp is who Rick Renteria feels most comfortable batting leadoff to start the season, which, of course, is always great baseball talk fodder on who should be batting leadoff. Uh, Who would you bet? I mean, I think I would. I mean, I don't think they'll do it, but I I, I would bat Grindall leadoff. I really would. You know, I think logically that makes a lot of sense. I, I think right now, if I had to guess, he may bat cleanup to break up. Abreu and Encarnacion in the middle of the lineup and then have Jimenez following Encarnacion. So Eloy Jimenez is going to bat sixth. And then you could figure out your Tim Anderson, your Luis Robert, and if Nick Madrigal, which we'll get to in a moment, starts the on the opening day roster. But yeah, as far as the leadoff hitter, I've got no idea. So Yasmani Grandal, I think would be a great choice because he gets on base and uh, then you can have Yuan Mikata bat second, then you can have Abreu at third, and then you can go down the rest of the list. It's going to be a fun lineup because, I mean, you're going to have, I would assume, I'm trying to project how those, like, once Madrigal's in the lineup, I would think he kind of slots into the second spot, perhaps. But, like, you're going to have, well, especially if you bat Grandal high in the lineup, I mean, you might have Mazzara or Robert batting eighth in the lineup at the start of the season. Mm-hmm. Um, well, right. I mean, one of those guys is probably going to wind up batting eighth. Yep. I would think. Yeah, it's, it's, you got to be excited, Josh. This is, I mean, this is a team that looks pretty interesting on paper. Yeah, I think they got a chance to break the franchise record in home runs. To 242 home runs, the 2004 White Sox hit. And that's the franchise record. I think they got a chance to break it this season, especially if they keep the same baseball 
from last year. Maybe they could hit more than 250 in 2020. Uh, Back to Nick Magical because for the top 100 prospect list, uh, Michael Kopech, in a way, is kind of competing for a 26-man roster spot. But I think the White Sox already have their mind made up that Kopech will start the year in AAA to break off some end-game rust after missing all of 2019, which... Which makes yeah. sense, yeah. Which I, I can't argue against that logic. But for Nick Magical, I know he did not have as much playing time as Luis Robert did at AAA last year in Charlotte. But, Jim, I think he's the best second baseman the White Sox have in camp right now. If 2020 is truly all about winning, do you think that the White Sox should have him at second base on opening day? A hundred percent. I would say exactly the same thing with you. When you, As you know, we've talked about Nick a lot ever since they drafted him, even probably before they drafted him in 2018 because we knew he was in their mix. And... You know, when you like, as I've often said, like I still have a little bit of a hard time figuring out exactly how much impact he's going to have in the big. I think he's a higher floor, solid regular type than a huge ceiling, you know, superstar type that you might associate with the number four pick. And and look, if you get a solid regular for several years at number four, you're doing pretty good. Just because, like I said before, I, I mean, his bat to ball skills are ridiculous. I mean, he he was the best player. Not necessarily the best prospect, but the best player in college baseball is the last two years at Oregon State. You know, they went 56-6 and six when he was a sophomore. They were 56-4 and four before losing twice in the College World Series. They had a chance to, to really go down as the best team of all time uh, before they lost in the semis. And then, even though he broke his wrist as a junior, he came back and he helped him win the, World Champ- the, the College World Series championship the next year. You know, best player in college baseball. The guy, you know, first full year in pro ball last year. And we knew the guy was advanced. Goes from high A to triple A. You know, made it look pretty easy. Hit 311. He struck out. <laughs> I still have a hard time wrapping my, my, my head around this number. I, 16 times in 120 games. <laughs> 16 times. Uh, you know, he struck out. Three percent of his plate appearances. Number two in the minors was Wander Franco, who struck out seven percent of the time. So he was less than half of that. And I went back and looked, and I forget what what year it was. The last guy who had a strikeout rate better than Nick Madrigal's in the minors as a batting qualifier was Williams Estudio, like in 2014 or 15. I can't. There was one year he didn't have enough, quite enough plate appearances, and the other year he did. But you know, it, 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 you know, it, you just don't see seasons like this. But the, you know, like I said before. He makes contact so easily. He doesn't walk a ton. So last year he hit 311, but the on base, you know, for a guy with 311 was 377. I mean, it was a batting average driven on base. Um, you know, there's not a lot of power. You know, he only hit four homers last year. He had, he had 36 extra base hits. So I mean, I think this is probably a guy who, you know, you know, hits 300, but it's not going to be huge slugging, huge on base. And he might be like a 300, 360. 400 type of guy. Um, but, you know, that said, I think he's a very good defender. I think he's a very good base runner. Um, but, yeah, so I'm, I'm explaining, I guess, again, why I can't wrap my head around exactly how good he's going to be. I think it's more floor than ceiling, but it's a huge floor. And I'm with you uh, a thousand percent. I mean, no offense to Lurie Garcia, but who else, who else are you going to play? Danny Mendick at second base? I mean, that's, yeah, that's right now what's the thought. It's the, between those three. And, I mean, look, I mean, Lurie Garcia is an interesting guy, but, I mean, he really should be a utility guy. Like, like last year, I think Lurie Garcia, you know, I mean, he hit 280. I mean, he doesn't walk, and he doesn't have power either. I mean, he had 
probably the best year you could expect out of Larry Garcia if you're playing him every day. And he had an ops under 700, and he's, you know, kind of one of those utility types who is okay. Like, I don't think he's that great a defender. Um, he's pro- you know, he played most of his time in the outfield last year. And, you know, he, he has infield experience. I mean, if you're trying to win, I think you got to play your best guys. And I, I don't – I mean – even I always think it's a little overblown to use like spring training like to read too much into it. Like oh we'll see how he comes out and performs, because just you know guys get it hot or cold too. Like I don't think spring training is a be all end all, and you know you're facing some guys who aren't even big league caliber players necessarily. But yeah, I, I look at this and I have a great deal of admiration for Danny Mendek willing himself to the big leagues. I mean it's it's a cool story, and Larry Garcia is versatile. But those guys aren't anywhere close to the player Nick Madrigal is. It, that'll be interesting. Like, if I were a White Sox fan, you know, unless – again, I don't read too much of spring training fans. Unless Nick Madrigal went out in spring training and hit, like, 120, and, and which he's not. Because Nick, like I said, the guy just is great. Like, he can just play the game. Like, he's not going to hit 120 in spring training. But unless he just bombed in spring training, if I'm a White Sox fan, I would be pretty mad if Nick Madrigal is not my opening day second baseman in a year where we're trying to win. Now back to the prospects, because obviously Michael Kopech, again, if he's in AAA for a month or two, he's breaking off the rust, getting that in-game experience back, working on his command. The second-best White Sox prospect is Andrew Vaughn, who ranks 16th in the top 100, four spots ahead of Michael Kopech. Vaughn is entering his first professional year. We are assuming that he'll be in Birmingham to start the season, but he could also start in Winston-Salem as he had a little experience with the Dash. only played about 29 games last year at that level. Double-A has always been a tough test for White Sox hitters, Jim. Do you think Andrew Vaughn is up to the test in his first full year in the minors if he does start in Birmingham? I do. And it's like, I don't know if there's been, I'm not saying he's going to be as good as this guy, but I remember Frank Thomas tearing up Birmingham I believe in his first full season uh, as a professional. Um, yeah, I just think Andrew Vaughn's too good of a hitter. I, I mean, I'm not saying he's going to, you know, hit you know 35 home runs if he spends a year in Double A because it isn't a great place to hit. But I mean, you, I'm just you, know, I, I'm, you try to come up with an offensive weakness for Andrew Vaughn. I, I don't know what it is. Like maybe you wish he hit left-handed instead of right-handed. But I mean, he's a natural <laughs> hitter. He's got you know for right-handed swing. Everybody talks about left-handed swings being pretty. You know, Andrew Vaughn's got like one of the best-looking right-hand swings you, you, you'll want to see. There's no holes. He's got bat speed. He's got strength. He uses the entire field. He doesn't chase. He draws walks. Um, like I, I, you know, I don't know what the. I mean, he can't run. I mean, so I guess offensively that would be his weakness. He can't run very well. But like at the plate, I mean, he does everything. He, did, I mean, there is no great weakness for him, or, or even actually great. There, there is no apparent weakness for him at the plate. So I think he'll be up to it. And you know, it's funny. I mean, we've talked about. And I've talked about with other people, too. I mean, I do think the White Sox probably have the most top-heavy farm system in baseball. They, they have four guys in our top 40 prospects on the top 100. And then it starts to drop off, you know, pretty quickly after the next couple guys. And a year from now when we're talking, Josh, unless something weird happens, Luis Robert, Michael Kopech, and Nick Madrigal aren't going to count as prospects anymore. Um, I would expect they're all going to lose their rookie status. And I would have thrown Andrew Vaughn into that mix before they went out and signed Grandal and Encarnacion and re-signed Abreu. And so I think those guys – I mean, Grandal's obviously going to catch a lot too, but McCann's still around. So I, I don't think there's going to be that many at-bats at first base or DH. But before that, I, I thought there was a chance that, again, if they're trying to win, you know, that they might get to August 
And it's weird. I, I guess that's what happened with Frank Thomas in 1990. Also, I'm not saying I'm not saying Andrew Vaughn's gonna be Frank Thomas, but um, but you know, I thought there was a chance that like, hey, the White Sox are contending. It's the end of July. Andrew Vaughn's had a great minor league season. Let's call him up and get him in the lineup. But like, uh, you know, I think if they hadn't made some of these free agent signings and trades, that that might have been a pot. He he's that good of a hitter. He. he I'm trying to think, I, and I haven't, I haven't thought it through to know, tell you who it would be. But I mean, the, the, for, in terms of guys who can hit for average and power, come through college baseball, he, he's the best prospect in several years. Wow. I mean, I guess you can make a case for Adley Rutschman too. Mm-hmm. I, I think, I think, like the, the Adley Rutschman's offense gets overlooked a little bit just because he's a catcher, and you, and you think about the whole all-around thing, a whole all-around game with him. But uh, you know, I mean, there, there haven't been too many hitters for for average and power more highly regarded than Andrew Vaughn in the last, you know, 10 years of college baseball or so. So you and I caught up during the winter meetings in San Diego. And at the time we were chatting in the hotel lobby. This was before Scott Boris had his big press conference. We had... <laughs> I draw a much smaller crowd than Scott. So. <laughs> you do. <laughs> that crowd was insane. I don't know why anybody goes it's like that. It's, it's, it's like that every year. And just, just, it's funny because Scott likes to hold court and he always has, you know, phrases like pillow contract or icon player. I don't know what his, his catchphrase was this year. But what's funny is, I mean, that's treated like, you know, state of the union address. It uh, is. And even at our place, like, like since I've been at MLB.com, there's always somebody who records it and then transcribes it for all the writers who weren't there. I mean, it's like, you know, the, the big pronouncement. Here's Scott coming down from the mountain <laughs> to share his wisdom with everybody. But, yeah, it's, it, it's, I'm glad you got to see that. That's, that I, I've never stood in the crowd trying to catch pearls of wisdom, but that is, that is one of the, the, the big events of the winter meetings is Scott speaking to the masses. Before that, we had some difficulties finding out who would be in the White Sox top 10 prospect list. And as you mentioned, there is a drop off after Robert Vaughn, Kopech and Madrigal. You went through the top 100 ranking process. The White Sox top 30 prospects at MLB.com will be released later in February. It sounds like you already know who's in the top 30. So before I ask you a couple of prospects on, on my mind on who where they rank in the top 30. How do you feel about the White Sox overall farm system to date? Well, like I said, it, it, you know, and we do have the list in order. There are a few teams who like to add the rankings to their media guide. And then the White Sox media staff does a great job. Not that adding our rankings makes a great job, but they're very thorough. And so I actually have finalized our order, even though it's not out yet. So if the White Sox could put it, put it, I finalized it earlier than some of the other teams, so the White Sox would have it for their media guide. So it is done. You know, like I was saying, I mean, it, it's a very – like it's a very unique farm system in terms of looking at other farm systems right now. They have four top 40 prospects. I'm not sure without looking at the list how many teams have four guys that high. If there's others, it's not many. And then there's a drop off. I mean, you know, you know, to me, the next couple guys would be you know Jonathan Stever and Dane Dunning. You know, and then you have the outfielders you're trying to figure out and some of the old suspects. But you know, like I was alluding to earlier, a year from now. You know, Robert, Kopech, and Madrigal aren't going to count as prospects. Vaughn probably will, and the number 11 to pick in the draft will probably, I assume, very good chance that guy's the number two prospect in the system. Um, but it's, you know, I, I think once those guys graduate, I mean, this is a farm system that's, that's continually ranked, you know, in the top 10 because of the, the guys at the top of the system. And they've graduated some of the guys to Chicago already, too, like Eloy and Dylan Cease last year, for instance. I think once you have the, the, those th- the three of the big four graduate, you're probably looking at a farm system 
that probably at, at that point would rank in the bottom third of baseball. And, you know, unless you have a number of guys take steps forward this year, um, you know, they've had a lot of guys hurt. They've had a guys kind of be okay, but not huge years. Um, you know, even last year, uh, you know, outside of Robert, who was healthy and living up to his potential, you know, and Jonathan Stever, who I, I did like coming out of the draft, I don't think they had a lot of their prospects who were on our preseason top 30 list who, when you looked at their year, said, oh, that guy exceeded expectations. Most of them, I mean, even Madrigal, who had a great year, I think had kind of the, I mean, you weren't necessarily expecting him to get to AAA, but Nick Madrigal, <laughs> if you told me, hey, Nick Madrigal's going to hit for high average, never strike out, play good defense and steal bases, I would have said, yeah, okay, what are you telling me? Like, that's Nick Madrigal. Uh, <laughs> so, like, I, I just think, I, I do think, you know, everybody's eyes are going to be on the big league team, and, you know, the team's going to probably be the best big league team they've had in a while. But it's an important year for the farm system because I do think they need to have guys step up and, and make progress. And, and I think the White Sox, you know, would tell you that too. You know, like, and, and, and as you know, and as I know as well, I mean, the White Sox are trying to do some things developmentally. Like they, they're, they're adding, I think they're getting more technologically advanced, uh, maybe is the best way to put it. And, and, and looking at things of way to, you know, the, the, this idea that, you know, I, I think it used to be this idea that like there's only so much you could do with a player, and I think now there's a greater awareness that like what, 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 how much better you thought you could make a player, like with technology and and, and you know pitch labs and and you know you know weight you know the vests and you know force plates you know, like you can measure a lot of things and try to unlock some things with players, and I think the White Sox are making a conscious effort to do that more so than they did in the past. All right, so the two players, one of them was Jonathan Stever that I was going to ask where he ranks in the top 30, but it sounds like it's number five. But that, that's fair, yeah. I will I will give you, without revealing too many secrets, and I mentioned Stever and Dunning were five and six for me. I, I, so, and, and, you know, Jonathan Stever, he was a guy I liked a lot out of the draft when he was in Indiana. You know, I think there was a mild physical concern about him, and he got torched. He got a little tired down the stretch, and he got torched in his last start in the NCAA regionals right before the draft. And I, and I think those factors combined to knock him down to the fifth round. But, you know, he's thrown a little harder uh, in pro ball than he did in college. He, he won, I think one of the best things he has going for him, he throws that, that spike curveball. And most guys who throw it – have trouble controlling it because it breaks so much. He actually commands his spike curveball better than most people do. Um, you know, I, I think he's got to refine his com- overall command a little bit, but he's got swing and miss stuff, and he really opened some eyes last year. So, yeah, to me, I, I will not count him as, as one of your your two guys. I will tell you where they rank. But, yeah, to me, Stever, Stever versus Dunning was an interesting debate because I've always liked Dane Dunning. I still think Dane Dunning can come back. But, you know, we'll see. So I decided to go with the guy who's healthy and coming off a great year over Dunning, who, you know, has a chance for four solid-plus pitches, but, you know, hasn't pitched in over a season. Okay, so my two, then, will be from last year's draft, and Andrew Dahlquist and Matthew Thompson. Where do they rank in the White Sox top 30? Okay, and, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you where they rank and say that I probably am a little bit more conservative on those guys. Then other places, you know, like like Baseball America or, or Fangraphs. I don't know if Fangraphs list is out yet, but like I probably am a little bit more conservative on those two guys than most. I put Thompson. And I, I, I like those guys. Um, you know, I think they kind of went in the draft where they were supposed to go. They they weren't overdrafted. I, I think you know, high school pitching is very volatile. 
Um, neither of those guys was a, a first-round type high school pitcher for me. Matthew Thompson is a guy who I think had flashed first-round stuff more so during the showcase circuit than he did as, as a high school senior. And Dahlquist is a uh, – you know, he's not – I mean, he's projectable, but he's not – you know, he's six foot one. It's not like he's going to throw 98 miles an hour. Yeah, I think Thompson's got better stuff. I think Dahlquist has more polish. I think they're both going to need time to develop. But I put – Thompson at 10 on my list and Dahlquist at 13 on my list and gave a little bit more credit to players who have advanced to double A or triple A who, you know, I guess we, we, we've seen, we've seen more of their flaws too. So maybe we're not, you know, sold that their ceilings are as high as what Thompson and Dahlquist might be if everything comes together. But but I am a proponent when you're doing rankings, you, you have to factor in, I guess what I would phrase is, you know, Thompson and Dahlquist have not had a chance to fail yet. Like right now, they're these shiny new toys. You know, they're high school pitchers. They're really intriguing. And they've pitched a grand total of five innings between them and pro ball. So, like, right. they, they, they haven't been exposed. So, like, Matt Thompson, you know, when he's on, you know, fastball's 96. It could be plus curveball. Um, but then there's times, too, where there's there's not a lot of life on the fastball, and the curve was inconsistent last year. We didn't stay on top of it. You know, and Dahlquist, like I said, has got some polish. But, you know, it's not, you know, super big-time velocity. It's it's 91, 95. I don't know if he's going to throw a whole lot harder. Um you know, he's got, you know, decent to solid breaking stuff, not wild breaking stuff. And, and we just haven't had a chance to see, like, you know, what happens when they pitch extended innings. So I, I think both those guys, if you told me, even with the, the guys graduating ahead of them, even aside from that, I think both those guys could definitely move up if they go out and perform and show why the White Sox are excited about them in their in their first full professional seasons. I just – I have to be a little bit more conservative because while I like those guys – I didn't want to go crazy, like not to not to pick on a guy, but like we talk about Zach Collins all the time, and Zach, as a writer, is and maybe perhaps even to the White Sox a little frustrating because I feel like Zach's the same player they drafted four years ago. You know, he he hits home runs, he draws walks, he's got some arm strength, but he swings and misses a ton. He's not a very good receiver, and the arm doesn't play as as well as the pure arm strength. So like I could sit there and, and knock Zach and say, yeah, you know, I, I think Zach in my mind is probably more of a backup catcher, first baseman, you know, who's going to run into a few home runs. You know, but, like, you know, I, I don't – He's to me, I, I don't think there's any way Zach Collins is everyday catcher. Like, I can come here and, sit and tell you, like, okay, we've watched Zach Collins for three years in pro ball or four seasons in pro ball, and I could tell you things I know he can't do. Well, I mean, is it fair – like, to me, you know, he also can do some things. He's proven it in AAA. And so, to me, I, I would put him ahead of both those pitchers because – you know, he, he's shown some things, even though he's been exposed in other ways, and we just haven't seen that with Thompson and Dahlquist. So I think there's a good chance that the second prospect in the White Sox farm system next year could be coming from this upcoming Major League Baseball draft or maybe the international signing period during July 2nd. And again, with the college baseball season beginning, we start our coverage on Sox Machine for the 2020 Major League Baseball draft. I release my top... 15 draft prospects on SoxMachine.com on Friday. And, Jim, I feel this draft class. Do you? They're out already, or is this next no, Friday? This is, or are they mine out already? is already out. Oh, I'm going to look at this right now. While All right, talking, excellent. So. Um, so I feel this draft class has strong prospects. And I also feel it's a deep class that 
anywhere from everyone in the first round, I think is going to get a quality draft prospect, uh, which hasn't been the case the last couple of years that there seems to be a drop off, especially after pick 10, as far as talent. I think that there is quality talent all the way up to the 30th pick in the first round. There will be a player of note with that said for the White Sox with the 11th overall selection. Who would you recommend, Jim, for White Sox fans to follow during the college and prep season this upcoming spring that could possibly be available for the White Sox at pick 11? I think based on the fact that they've gone kind of heavily college over high school in recent years, um, and just the makeup of this draft, I, I would follow any number of college pitchers. Um, you know, I'm, I'm looking at your list, and you're talking about guys who could go number one, who obviously won't get to them. You, know, you mentioned three college position players, Austin Martin, Spencer Torkelson, Nick Gonzalez. I agree with that. I think Garrett Mitchell from UCLA isn't that far behind. But I think all those guys, I, I'd be very surprised, you know, barring like a down season, that any of those guys would make it to number 11. I think they're all going to be gone. And there's a cut, there's some high school pitchers we like, but I just think, you know, last year it was a very weak draft in terms of, of college pitching. It, it was, it was as bad a group of college pitchers in terms of guys who belonged in the first round, the top of the draft as I could ever remember. I mean, it, it was just not good. The, the arms just weren't there. And, and the flip this year now, there's a ton of college pitchers. Now, Emerson Hancock from Georgia prize going to get to 11, and I would not anticipate that Asa Lacey from Texas A&M is going to get to 11. Those are probably the two guys who are going to be off the board. But you've got Garrett Crochet at Tennessee, Reed Detmers at Louisville, J.T. Ginn at Mississippi State, Carmen Majinski at South Carolina, C.G. Van Eyck at Florida State. I, I don't know if Max Meyer from Minnesota is going to go number 11, but I, I love Max Meyer. I mean, and I could go on and on. you got Cole Wilcox at Georgia, Kate Cavalli at Oklahoma, Tanner Burns at Auburn, Jake Eater at Vanderbilt. Some of these guys are going to push up. You know, Miami's got Slade Chaconin, Chris McCann, or Chris McMahon. I, I, so anyway, I, I think if I had to bet on the demographic, and also just kind of looking at what the White Sox could use, a college pitcher who could get there in a couple years and, and join the rotation – would be that would fill a need, and not that you're drafting for need, but that's also I think what the supply is this year. So and, you know, unless they were to go with one of the big high school arms in Jared Kelly or Mick Abel or, or Nick Bitsko, which I don't think they would necessarily do that high in the draft. I think it would be one of those college guys. I, I could really see it being one of those college guys. And again, you're not going to draft for need, but if you were. You know, outside of Dallas Keuchel, you know, and Rodonnelly back at some point, you know, they don't have a lot of lefties in the system. You know, maybe taking a lefty like Garrett Crochet or Reed Detmers would make a lot of sense. And I believe you, you, you were speculating, you know, based on some stuff that, that David Seifert had done in D1 baseball, that, that Reed Detmers might be the might be the guy who fits there. Yeah, and he looked good on Friday against a tough opponent in, in Ole Miss. You know what? He he reminds me a lot of Jose Quintana. Fastball, curveball, heavy. And he has a changeup that he'll flash once in a while. But he wants to pound you inside with the fastball and get you thinking high with the fastball. And then he'll just break off that curveball against righties and lefties for strike three. And even though he only hits 92 to 93 on the gun with his four-seam fastball, so it's it's an average fastball, uh, he still finds a way to pound the strike zone. He doesn't walk a lot of guys, and he racks up a lot of strikeouts. And I, and I know it's the college level, and I don't expect him to post 
huge strikeout numbers in the major leagues in his future. But that's that's kind of the player comp that I see when I watch Reed Detmers is that the way that he attacks hitters really reminds me the way that Jose Catana would attack hitters when he was with the White Sox. The guy who he kind of reminds me of because it's the same school and they're, they're kind of a similar build. To me, he kind of reminds me of Brendan McKay, you know, who's, okay. you know, with the Rays now, the two-way guy, you know, better as a pitcher than he is as a hitter. But he, he reminds me they're kind of built the same, and he's kind of like Brendan McKay with a little less stuff. You know, McKay's come up with a pretty good cutter um, since he's been in pro ball. Um, but, you know, just a guy who has really good aptitude for pitching, and, he, you know, he, he's more dominant than his stuff. I mean, Brendan McKay didn't throw – particularly hard either, you know, in the fastball play, you know, and he had a good curveball, but it wasn't like you were going, ooh, and ah, you know, that, that's an unbelievable curve, guys having a chance. You know, Brendan McKay had good stuff, and he could really, really pitch, and that's kind of Reed Detmers. Reed Detmers, like I said, has a little bit less stuff than Brendan McKay, um, but he kind of goes, you know, he's one of these guys, too, you know, you know he has a an easy delivery, so he's not maxing out at all, which is why I don't think he throws quite as hard as some other guys. But he just, you know, commands his stuff really well. And again, like you said, it's the college level. But he's shown that even like on days where he's pitching in the upper 80s, you know, he misses bats, he gets outs. I, I think he, you could argue that you know, of all the pitchers in the first round on you know that, were t- that I just rattled off, he probably has the best pitchability of any of them. You know, he's left-handed, he's got great mound presence. You know, he's again probably more. If you know, you say what stands out more, floor versus ceiling. You'd say floor, but uh, you know, I, I I think there's probably less likelihood compared to some of the other guys that 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 Reed Demers is a number one, number two starter. But I think there's a very high probability, and certainly compared to these other guys, that he's at least a, a number three or a number four. Um, and I think he'd be a good pick um, if they got him at eleven. Yeah, if you need someone in 2022 to be in your starting rotation. I think Reed Detmers, because the fastball is not going to, I don't think, going to gain more velocity. He might be the most major league ready out of the starting pitchers, in my opinion, on the college level, even though the other starters like Asa Lacey and Emerson Hancock, I even throw Cole Wilcox as well, they have better stuff. They just will need to prove that they have a hold or grasp of their command in the minor leagues. They may take a little longer, where at least Detmers has that, leg up on them that he has excellent command that he can he can quickly rise through the farm system but i agree with you jim the, the starting pitching is outstanding in this upcoming draft class before we let you go for a couple of years you've been saying on this show about the white Sox rebuild that the successful rebuild seemed to click a year before expected the chicago cubs and the houston astros both made the postseason in 2015 after their rebuilds, and the Atlanta Braves did so in 2018. How do you feel about the White Sox chances in 2020 to finally click and break this postseason drought that's lasted since 2008? I do feel good. You know, it's funny. I think at this point, given the moves I made in the offseason, I, I expect them to contend this year. But I also don't think like they're sneaking up on anybody. So I, I know I've said that, and I, I kind of threw the Padres out there. It's a possibility the last couple of years, too. These teams with the great farm systems contending before you, the, the, you anticipate that they will. But no, I, I, I think the White Sox, you know, it, it's, they, 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 it helps, too. I mean, you look at the AL Central, such a weird division right now. I mean, the, the Tigers aren't going to contend, and the White Sox aren't going to contend. And you get to play them, is it 38 times? Um, so, I mean, you're going to get a lot of wins against those two teams. I mean, I, I would expect that, like, you know, going, you know, 25 and 13 wouldn't be unexpected against those two teams. So that gets you a nice start right there. You know, Cleveland, 
I don't know what Cleveland's doing. Like, it's almost like they're determined to rebuild before they have to. And, you know, I know they're not the Yankees or Dodgers and printing money, but come on. Like, you know, they're not, you know, they're basically shedding players left and right. I know Corey Kluber was hurt, but, you know, they gave Corey Kluber away. You know, if you could make, if you were willing to give up a lot of talent for Francisco Lindor, they would trade him. I'm just not sure that the Indians are all in. You know, Mike Clevenger, you know, has an injury right now. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not convinced the Indians are really all in. So, I, I, if I were lining the teams up, I think the Twins would be the division favorite. But they've also been, you know, volatile too. You know, I'm not sure they're a hundred. You know, I, I don't know if I really think they're going to win 101 games again. Um, you know, and they, they kind of, you know, bounced from. Wild card team in 2017 to under 500 in 2018 to 101 wins last year. And even before that, they won 83 games in 2015 and then 59 in 2016. So I don't know if they've, they've turned into Brett Saberhagen and they're going to have a bad year this year because it's an even-numbered year. But, um, you know, I, I, I think they're going to come back to the pack a little bit too. So I, I haven't tried to put my predictions together. I, the White Sox are definitely going to contend, and I would think – I mean, I haven't I haven't made my predictions yet, so I can't. But I mean, looking at this, I mean, I think you'd have to feel pretty good about their chances of at least getting a wild card. You know, the, the Red Sox have come back to the pack a little bit. I don't know what the Indians are doing. I, I, you know, the A's. I still kind of feel like the A's do it with mirrors a little bit. Um, would anybody be really shocked if the Astros had like a weird year with everything that's going on and they lost Garrett Cole and they won 83 games? Like, I'm not saying I'm not predicting that's going to happen, but like I, I I think the White Sox are right there at the forefront of wild card contention and can make a run at the division. How about you? Are you feeling good going into the year? Again, to go come full circle, I'm scared, Jim, <laughs> of having high expectations for the White Sox in 2020. Because uh, I remember 2016 when they started 23-10. But uh, I'm excited, and everyone's excited right now about the White Sox in 2020, and and hopefully they can start off really well. Uh, as you mentioned, the 38 games against the Royals and Tigers, they have nine games against the Royals before May 1st. So if they can do well in the first, the last week of March and, the, and all of April, then I, I, I think I'll be right with you as far as expectations to see if they can uh, – make the postseason. But no, I, I do expect them to have a winning season in 2020. And uh, if everything breaks right, uh, then yeah, wild card is definitely in the possibility. I just don't know without major injuries to the Minnesota Twins lineup, if the White Sox are strong enough right now to catch them to win the American League Central. That's that's the only iffy part about the White Sox in 2020 that I'm still not sure about. Yeah, I mean, I think it comes down to their pitching. Because, I mean, really, you know, like like the pitching, there's a lot of, you know, there, there's a lot of upside there and there's a lot of question marks too. But I, I think if they get enough pitching, you know, and maybe if they get off to a good start, you know, and that makes them more willing to, you know, go out and, and trade for a pitcher during the season too. But I think if they can get good enough pitching, like if they could have average starting pitching, then I think they have a very good chance to at least get a wild card. Well, you've heard it here. 33 homers for Luis Robert. White Sox, a wild card contender. Jim is getting us hyped up. <laughs> I can't wait for opening day late in March. And uh, you can follow Jim on Twitter. He's at Jim Callis MLB. And, of course, read his excellent work on MLB.com slash pipeline. Again, 
the rest of the White Sox top 30 prospects will be released uh, later in February. So definitely check that out. I know it's always great conversation, especially on Sox Machine and especially on White Sox Twitter. So again, that will be coming up soon on MLB.com slash pipeline. And as always, Jim, it's great to catch up with you again. And thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, it was great talking to you, Josh. I always enjoy this. Coming up after the break, Patrick Nolan will join me as we'll preview the 2020 Chicago White Sox bullpen. The Chicago White Sox bullpen in 2019 had some promising surprises. Aaron Bummer became a late-ending weapon for manager Rick Renteria when he needed to find outs in high-leverage situations. Alex Colome found ways to consistently close out leads in the ninth inning. Evan Marshall was a non-roster invitee to become the seventh-inning guy. And the emergence of Jimmy Cordero towards the end of the season was a nice sight to see. But there were some concerns. Kelvin Herrera was the free agent acquisition who just never got into a good rhythm and had a terrible 2019 campaign. Jace Fry was the breakout reliever in 2018 and became the broken reliever in 2019. A slew of injuries to young arms also hurt the White Sox in getting more discovery opportunities. That led to the White Sox having to acquire Steve Ciszek in free agency, hoping to give Renteria another dependent dependable arm out of the bullpen. Overall, the 2019 White Sox bullpen was 15th in war, according to Fangraphs, 14th in ERA, 18th in FIP, and 15th in left-on-base percentage. Will they be a middle-of-the-road unit again in 2020? Or is there a possibility they could be better as the team tries to contend for a postseason spot? Well, to help preview the Chicago White Sox relievers, his fellow editor of SoxMachine.com, it's Patrick Nolan, but in these parts, we know him as p And hello, p Thanks for coming back on the show. Oh, it's always wonderful to be on, Josh. Thanks for having me. Let's start with an overview of the bullpen unit. As I mentioned, the White Sox bullpen was middle of the road in their performance in 2019. How strong or weak of a unit is the 2020 Chicago White Sox bullpen? Well, you know, I'll tell you what, I had some concerns before they signed Steve Ciszek, um, and, and that's not to say that Ciszek solved all the problems that I perceived, but um, I, I think that with Ciszek, they're probably somewhere close to average. Um, I think that it was definitely a unit where, you know, you had a guy like Aaron Bummer who broke out last season and did about as well as anybody possibly could have expected him to. Um, but then, you know, beyond him, you have Alex Colome, who is you know maybe a little bit on the luckier side of the closer role, and uh, beyond that, beyond those two guys, you didn't really have anybody you could point to that had an extended track record of success, um, other than Jimmy Cordero down the stretch, and he did a lot of that without striking guys out. So um, I, I, you know, I wasn't really sure that they had a third guy that they'd really be able to count on. And you know, with Bummer, I mean, we saw what happened when you know another lefty and Jace Fry. Uh, as you mentioned already, just kind of completely pancaked and uh, after his breakout season. So, I mean, you know, bummer, he doesn't have like the track record that the other elite relievers in the league have. So who knows if that's going to, if that's going to last, but um, Steve Ciszek should be some nice insurance against some of that stuff going wrong. And I think that uh, on balance, it's probably an average unit. Now for the relievers, we are going to look at what each of the seven relievers that we are assuming are going to be part of the bullpen. We're going to discuss them, what they need to approve upon from 2019. And let's start with the assumed closer, Alex Calame. I'm hoping, Pinoles, he can duplicate his 215 BABUP against 
that he had last year. Uh, I'm assuming that it's going to be closer to his career BABIP of 304, uh, which is going to be some regression compared to what he did in 2019. But from Alex Colomazer, one thing that you can point to that he needs to approve upon from last year to make sure that he's still a successful closer for the White Sox in 2020. Well, I think he needs to get his strikeout to walk ratio uh, closer to you know where it was before this past season. I mean, uh, you know, if if Colome was just a really lucky pitcher that was able to maintain the peripherals of his past, I don't think we would have as much talk about him as we did last season. But fact of the matter is, he was something of a pedestrian reliever last year, and you know, a, a decent one, one that you would still um, want to have in like a you know seventh eighth inning role in reserve, but. Um, as a closer, as your stopper, I mean, he, he was just too contingent on guys hitting the ball right at people. And I think that uh, this is going to sound like a high number, but I think that folks batted in the mid 400s against him on line drives. I think the league hits like 600 something on line drives. So he was definitely pretty fortunate. There was a lot of balls hit right at people, and that's not something he can control. Um, there's maybe something to be said for the positioning effect of the fielders, but the easier thing is just that um, <laughs> the easier thing to point is that. None of the other White Sox pitchers seem to benefit from that. So I think that when you see that, uh, you can you can see that a guy was just really lucky, and hopefully he can get back to being the reliever that uh, that he was in the past, so that he can offset some of that regression you were talking about. So then the guy that will be setting up Column A, we are assuming again, will be Aaron Bummer. Bummer also had a very favorable BABIP against hitters. Had a two twenty eight BABIP against Aaron Bummer last year, and his left on base percentage was 82.3%, which is exactly what you want from a reliever in high-leverage situations that's coming in to games in the middle of jams and making sure those guys do not score. Aaron Bummer was very good at that last year. Is there anything that you can point to, Pinoles, when looking at his 2019 performance that you would like him to make a slight adjustment so he can repeat that same type of success for the White Sox in 2020? Yeah, I mean, I, I really don't know what you could what you could ask Aaron Bummer to improve upon over what he did last year. He was simply put one of the best relievers in baseball. Um, I, I think that for a guy with a strikeout rate that was only um, a tick shy of twenty three percent, that that's a little bit of a shocking statement to make. But uh, other than that, strike out more guys, and I, I think that's probably a, a tall task. I, I don't know what you could ask him to do. I mean he was getting guys to beat the ball into the dirt so often that ground ball rate is 72%. He was just ensuring that when guys did make contact with them, you know, not only was the contact not dangerous, but he was able to erase base runners via the double play when he could. So he just did everything extremely well. And I really don't know what advice I could give him other than, you know, hope, hope the bad just as good this year and, uh, and you know, have a good time mowing through the league. Now, if you have a ground ball rate that high, you that could lead to that low of a BABIP, right? Penal's like we, we look at a 228 BABIP against, and the first thing everybody wants to say is that's not sustainable. But it, I think with his sinker combination that he throws, a sinker slider, that if he can continue to have a 72% ground ball rate, I have to imagine his BABIP against is just going to be generally that low, right? 
Yeah, I think it. I think it's probably going to be on the low side. I think that something in the two twenties is kind of extreme. Uh, really, it's the it's the fly balls that tend to have a lower BABIP. Uh, the ground balls are kind of average. But what he was able to do is completely suppress line drives. Uh, the line drive rate of eleven percent was was way down there, and he was avoiding you know those kind of dangerous contacts that uh, fielders have a hard time getting to. So yeah, I mean, a lot of the ground balls were weak. Um, he, he should, if he pitches like this again, be expected to have another pretty low Babbitt. I don't know if it'd be quite that low, but we're not talking like an Alex Colomay situation where, uh, where what he was doing was so out of whack with the quality of the pitching. Okay, so let's talk about the other relievers that there are, def- I think, definitive things that they need to improve upon from 2019 to help the bullpen be a stronger unit in 2020. So let's start with Jace Fry. Jace Fry increased his left on base percentage and his ground ball rate in 2019 from 2018, which are two good things that you want to see from relievers. But he doubled his walk rate from three and a half per nine innings in 2018 to seven per nine innings. Other than stop walking hitters, Jace Fry, uh, what are other areas that Fry could be better at, Penals? I mean, I think that's that's basically it. It's it's really just the walks. I mean, you see him in in, in 2018 when he was pitching, he just looked unhittable, especially to lefties. I mean, righties sometimes ate his lunch, but not not all that frequently. He was able to kind of keep him at bay, and then lefties just had no chance. He would whip that slider up there, and, and they would just kind of wave at it and not even come close to it. But the problem is, it seems like he wasn't able to locate that slider at all in 2019, and he wasn't able to put himself in those favorable counts where he could really use it as a wipeout pitch. And I think that's what got to him. Um, he definitely had some outings last season where, you know, his old self, <laughs> if you really want to call it, you know, 2018, his old self, but he was, he was able to show a vintage Jace Fry mode and just uh, destroy everybody. But you know, that didn't happen all that frequently. And I, I think there's just been something messed up with his command that he's got to fix. And uh, that that's basically it. I mean, I wish I could tell you that, it was something besides the walks, but he, he definitely is very, very good stuff. And if you can't control it, then uh, you're going to have some bumpy rides in the late innings. With the new league rule, a minimum of three batters having to face, does that put Jace Fry in hot water or at least give him a short leash with Rick Renteria as far as sustained power in the White Sox bullpen for 2020? Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely doesn't help it. Um, you know, not being able to use him for just one out in some situations is probably going to be, uh, you know, undesirable. Um, but, you know, I think that unless there's really a, another lefty in the minors that's really pushing him for it, as long as he's able to, you know, to retire guys from the left side of the plate, you probably can still find some situations where, where it's worthwhile to use them. And, you know, the fact that you don't have to face three batters if, uh, you know, if you end the inning, that probably will uh, help to find some situations where you can still deploy uh, Lukies in some contexts. So, uh, so yeah, I, I don't, I don't know that he's going to be on a super short leash, but uh, definitely not as much rope as he had uh, while he was working through his struggles in the middle of last year. Then there's Kelvin Herrera. Other than everything, is there anything, <laughs> is there anything specific with Kelvin Herrera that you could point to that maybe gives you hope? So we'll do the opposite instead of needing to work on, For Herrera, is there anything from Laster that gives you hope that he could have a bounce back, maybe even a dead cat bounce back in 2020? Well, I'd say, um, you know, an optimist would probably look at Herrera and say that a lot of the struggles he had in the middle of the summer were related to injury. Um, He started off the season pretty well. He finished the season pretty well. And everything in between was just a mess. And and we know that he had just a, a lot of trouble staying healthy and 
you know, even the times that he was able to take the ball, uh, you might you might get this you might be able to say maybe it wasn't all there and maybe he can come back this year be fully healthy and kind of snap back to uh, more of the competent reliever he was before he showed up in Chicago um, so that's kind of the uh, the optimist reading of the situation and you'll notice that um, you know if you look at his uh, um, his pitch breakdown by month and, and Jim had a really good article about this but when he returned to the cutter in in September. Uh, he did have some success with that pitch. He did have some success a little bit earlier in the season with that. And then he kind of got away from that um, during the summer months when he was pitching a little bit more infrequently because of injuries. So um, I think September was maybe a, a decent springboard towards a, a better 2020 for Kelvin Huera, but uh, we'll see what, uh, what shape his body's in when he gets into camp. And then there's Jimmy Cordero. What can he do? to prove that he's worthy to still be in the White Sox bullpen after we saw him in 2019. Yeah, no, Jimmy Cordero, I think he, he proved quite a bit. Um, I think he, he's got to be a lock to open the season in the bullpen. Um, one thing that was interesting about him is that I think he, he gave up almost no runs in September. It might've actually even been zero, but the strikeouts also kind of disappeared as well during that month. And yeah, that's, um, I don't think guys were hitting him particularly hard. Uh, he's a ground ball pitcher, so he can get away with a little bit more than some other guys can. But at, at the same time, you know, he's not going to be able to survive in a major league bullpen unless he's striking out more than uh, the almost the almost no guys he was striking out in September. So uh, I think he's going to have to be able to find a consistent out pitch and. Uh, in particular, the fastball. The fastball wasn't much of a swing and miss offering down the stretch. So if he can get guys to swing and miss at his fastball a little bit more, um, I think that'll be a uh, pretty good key for him this year. Then a pitcher that's not like Jimmy Cordero as far as stuff, and that's Evan Marshall. He had his best year since 2014 when he was with the Arizona Diamondbacks. Again, last year he was a non-roster invitee that found himself in the White Sox bullpen after a strong spring training, and he was reliable as the first guy out of the bullpen in the sixth or seventh innings of games for the White Sox, being able to hand the ball off to Aaron Bummer, and then Bummer getting it to Colome, and that was a White Sox win. Uh, pretty successful combination in 2019. Uh, you know, the, the thing I wonder, though, with Ceshek signing P. Knowles is is Evan Marshall even that needed now with the acquisition of Steve Ciszek? Well, I think he's going to be needed until some of the guys from the minor leagues start to step up and, and prove that they belong in the major league bullpen. Um, I, I think that Marshall is a guy that White Sox, White Sox fans should be afraid of regressing significantly this season. I mean, we're talking about a guy who actually turned out to be pretty reliable, as you said, for most of last season, but he ran less than a two-to-one strikeout-to-walk ratio. I mean, he has a history of walking too many guys in the bullpen, and he doesn't have, you know, more than his changeup is a decent out pitch, but, you know, it's just that. It's just decent. It's not overwhelmingly great, and he doesn't really have any other offerings that that, uh, stifle opposing hitters. So I think that Marshall, the White Sox are, uh, you know, <laughs> they came out ahead on this. And I think that as long as they don't give him a great deal of rope um, and they, they kind of understand that, um, you know, they were essentially playing with house money with him last year, just uh, picking him up for almost nothing and, and getting a guy who was able to um, take them through a lot of the summer and, and set up the uh, uh, eighth and ninth inning guys in the pen. So um, Marshall, I, I'm, I'm a little worried about him. I don't think he's going to be around all that long, but uh, we'll see what happens. And then the new guy, Steve Ciszek, who I think is going to take over Evan Marshall's responsibility in the seventh inning, be that reliever to take care of the seventh, hand the ball off to Aaron Bummer. Bummer then gets the ball to Alex Colome, 
And hopefully that back end of Bummer and Colome can repeat their success in 2019. Because if they could do that in 2020, the White Sox, I think have a good combination in the middle to high leverage situations, penals, of continuing to produce wins, uh, especially if the games are close late. With Steve Ciszek, what do you expect as far as his production joining the White Sox from the Chicago Cubs? You know, I think that uh, I think that Ciszek is is going to be a good reliever. Um, I think that he's maybe more in the mold of of what Alex Colome hypothetically should have been last year, where he's not this shutdown guy that's going to be a you know a relief ace that really. Uh, boost your win probability a ton over the course of the season. But at the same time, he's a reliable arm. He's proven that he can survive in the late innings. Um, you know, he's closed before. So you know, to whatever uh, significance you want to ascribe mentality, um, I'm, I'm sure he's got plenty of that. Um, he's also kind of interesting in that he's, I, I posted about this um, in my off season review, but he's had an uncanny ability to beat the metrics um, from an ERA perspective in each of his last five seasons. And unfortunately, you know, since he hasn't been a member of this team, I've only really seen him when the Sox have played other teams. But, you know, one could surmise that there might be some factor to his pitching. Maybe he's just really good at uh, perception um, where guys don't seem to uh, teams don't seem to get as many runs off him that you think uh, might based just purely on his peripheral numbers. So there could be some guile involved. I mean, he's a he's a seasoned veteran and. Uh, I'm thinking that he's going to be pretty good for the Sox, but um, you know the, the walk rate has spiked in the last couple seasons, so hopefully he can get that more under control and uh, help to shut the door for this team because hopefully we're going to be getting a lot more wins. Yeah, again, I expect him. I mean, that's that's a fair expectation, right, that C-Sheck is going to take over Evan Marshall's responsibilities in the 2020 season. I would say so, yeah. I mean, I think that C-Sheck is a more, a more proven version of what Marshall gave us last right. year. So how does Kelvin Herrera fit if if everything's going well and everyone's rested and you got your starter that goes six maybe gets into the seventh hands the ball off to c-shack and then c-shack hands it off to bummer and then bummer to Colome. i mean is kelvin herrera now on the b team when it comes to white Sox relievers i would think so i mean he's he's got to prove that he's he's, he's worth a damn in the late innings until uh, before uh, renteria can really trust him in that spot i mean if i'm looking at him i'm Seeing a guy who, you know, he, he's had to fight his way through injury struggles. I mean, if he shows up healthy, then, I mean, it's great if you have four relievers that you can allocate over the last three innings. Because if you have stretches where you have a lot of close games, that allows you to mix and match and, you know, try to play matchups and not burn any particular guy out all that much. Um, so certainly I think that there's a, a role for Calvin Herrera in the late innings if he looks like, you know, either the guy from seasons prior to 2019 or the guy from April or September 2019. So it really just depends uh, what version Herrera shows up. So then the A team is Calame and Bummer, Alex and Aaron. And then the B team is Jace Fry and Kelvin Herrera. If Fry and Herrera could step up their game and return back to their better forms, is there is that how the White Sox have a top ten bullpen? Yeah, I think that's real. I think that's the path to it. I mean, you can look with the exception of Evan Marshall. I think that you can take an optimistic view of the, each of these seven guys and find a way to you know spin this bullpen as successful. And you know, when when you have an average bullpen on paper, I mean, bullpens are fickle, right? Like you can have an average bullpen on paper to begin the season that actually turns out to be one of the league's better units. I mean, geez, let's just think about the 2005 White Sox. Did anybody think? that that bullpen was going to be the greatest in baseball uh, when the season opened. I sure as heck doubt it. So 
<laughs> really anything can happen. And I think that um, with Herrera's history and the upside that Fry showed in 2018, there's definitely a path for this bullpen being good and even elite. It's just that <laughs> it's so hard to predict these things given the small sample of innings and uh, the difference in guys' career paths from year to year. And then finally, the White Sox will have an eighth reliever, and there's an open competition for that eighth bullpen spot. Pinos, who do you like for the White Sox to win that final bullpen spot out of camp? You know, you made this very difficult for me because you asked who do I like for the White Sox to win it out of the camp, and that <laughs> I think that conflicts with the answer I'm about to give you. I, I feel like okay. I feel like it's going to be Carson Fulmer. Um, the reason being is that I, I fully acknowledge that over the course of the full season, he is probably not the guy that's going to be the one that they want in that role. But uh, the fact of the matter is, you know, you got a guy who's out of options, you know, he's already on the uh, 40 man roster. He, he can be, um, he can just be the last guy in there. He can kind of, you know, help and you know, eat up innings and blowouts and, you know, they can put him up there without rushing, let's say, guys like, you know, Ian Hamilton, who's kind of lurking periphery, but might not be somebody they want to throw into the flames on opening day. Um, I could see, you know, a possibility like a guy like uh, Adalberto Mejia, maybe he has a strong spring and it gets in there. But, um, you know, other than Fulmer, I, I really don't see a great argument for any particular guy. Um, it just stinks that Fulmer has not really given us anything to dream on to this point. Got it. So if it's Carson Fulmer, I believe he's out of options. Yep. If he struggles in the early part of the year, when it comes to June or July, if the White Sox are winning baseball games, is that where you see the White Sox making a couple exchanges with Fulmer? And I guess we should even throw Evan Marshall as two bullpen spots that Rick Hahn could possibly make find upgrades for in the summer. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, and you know, some of the some of that might come from the fact that. They have currently six guys um, that I think are slated for the starting rotation. Um, obviously, I think that all the talk has been around Kopech being the guy who starts the season in the minor leagues. But when he comes up, assuming everybody's healthy, um, one of those starters is going to have to go to the bullpen, um, assuming that they don't get demoted to the minors. And then when Carlos Rodon returns midseason, I mean, that's another guy you have to count for, account for in that rotation. So, I mean, there is a distinct possibility that in addition to guys like Hamilton in the minor leagues, some of the White Sox starting pitchers might be taking bullpen roles. And, and maybe that's a guy like uh, Reynaldo Lopez or Dylan Cease, who uh, is a strong one-inning guy down there. Or maybe you have Gio Gonzalez, who takes on this uh, swingman role and is able to kind of piggyback off of some starters that have some rougher outings. So, um, there's a, there's a lot of ways it could go, but I, I don't think Fulmer is going to be uh, the man for the full season. <laughs> well, that's what Gio Gonzalez did for the Milwaukee Brewers during their postseason runs. So uh, I, I can see that happening with Gio Gonzalez, especially if Reynaldo Lopez and, Car and uh, I'm sorry, Dylan Cease are pitching well in the starting rotation for the White Sox and Michael Kopech proves that he's ready to go. Uh, I, I can see Gio Gonzalez moving to the bullpen and being the lawn man for the White Sox, much like a much better version of Hector Santiago that we saw last year for the White Sox, Pinos. Yeah, I'd say if Gio Gonzalez is the sixth, is the sixth starter out of the bullpen, then a lot has gone right for this team. So that's a, an exciting scenario to think about. You can follow Pinos on Twitter. He's at SoxMock underscore Pinos. And we hope to have him on more frequently on the show in 2020 during the season. But you could also read his work on SoxMachine.com. And Pinos, as always, buddy, thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely, Josh. It's always a blast.
Coming up after the break, it's your questions in P.O. Socks. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now, Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X5 gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter by following us on Twitter at Sox Machine and also helping support the site and show at Patreon.com slash Sox Machine. And joining me now to answer your guys' questions is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. I think... This mailbag is a great way to avoid talking about Rob Manfred and the Houston Astros. (laughs) We will get to those topics next week because I'm sure both parties are going to continue to provide fodder on the cheating scandal that I think is going to – if the juice ball was the topic of conversation in 2019, Jim, this cheating Mm -hmm. scandal is the topic of 2020. Well, yeah. I guess I'll, I'll save most of my thoughts for that discussion. But one thing I, I've wondered is it just kind of maybe uh, theoretically is this is maybe the closest we'll see like humans or at least, you know, humans in, in the area we're covering uh, the closest we'll see them come to selling their soul, you know, kind of the, the, the Faustian bargain where it's just like they, uh, they said they made a deal to achieve uh, the height of their profession. And now here comes the catch. And I'm curious, like, yeah, watching this catch unfold and watching him thrash against it and not convincing anybody. Uh, yeah, I'm curious how long that's going to last and, and how long it's going to follow him around. And if it will be, you know, if not delegitimized by Rob Manfred, just like completely written off the way some steroid era achievements are more or less written off or, or shrugged away. And, uh, I just wonder, you know, it, it kind of feels like this is as close as it gets in a, you know, kind of a very literary fashion. Again, we'll probably talk more about Rob Madfred and the cheating scandal that's going on in major league baseball on next week's episode. As we just had a lot of other things to discuss about the Chicago white Sox. We'll also have spring training games as well. So we'll see on the, <laughs> the world turns the Houston Astros, the, the soap opera that they have become this spring training reminds me of another team in 2016 that dominated headlines during spring training. Ah, uh, memories. But anyways, let's <laughs> our shenanigans are cheeky and fun. <laughs> Kinda. Their shenanigans are cruel and tragic <laughs> and impact other teams. Uh, yes. White Sox shenanigans are only self-inflicted. <laughs> Uh, But anyways, let's get to your guys' questions this week in P.O. Sox. And let's start with Twitter from Not Dan Hayes. And Not Dan Hayes is asking, Jim, how good do the White Sox have to be in order to be flexed into a Sunday night baseball broadcast this season or at least scheduled for one in 2020-21? I would say if they're good and the Twins are better, 
or at least, you know, uh, I would say if they're both compelling enough to be wild card or AL Central teams, like if they're both in 90-win territory or 90-win pace, that's great. But I think as long as you can foster some divisional intrigue in the second half of the season, then I think they could maybe be bumped into it because uh, that, that that's played up before the, the whole rivalry thing. I think the Twins have a high enough profile to get involved and uh, the White Sox, you know, if they are exciting and they have the pieces to be exciting, you know, with the, with uh, some guys with the national profile like uh, Tim Anderson and Lucas Giolito and Juan Makata and such, and Eloy Jimenez, if he hits a big, he should be another big star. I think they can be marketed in that slot, but uh, I'm hoping that this is the last year where we'll have to, uh, uh, you know, more or less uh, wonder what the 1983 uniforms look like at night. There are a couple of dates that I see that could be possible flexes. You mentioned the Minnesota Twins. I think Sunday, July 26th, that spot hasn't already been taken. That's a Sunday home game against the Minnesota Twins in which the White Sox are still at home against the Detroit Tigers those next three games. I could see that game possibly being flexed for the White Sox, especially if they're good and the Minnesota Twins are good. You have a lot of conversations, too, because if the White Sox are right there with the Twins on top of the American League Central, the trade deadline is just five days away. Uh, again, you, you have a tight, if the division race is tight, uh, I could see that game being flexed. And, of course, it's after the All-Star game as well. Uh, the other game that I see, I, I know, I'm sure they're already on prime time Thursday night as they play against the New York Yankees at Iowa. But again, if the White Sox, if they can make a move during July and they're still good and they're in the postseason running, and we know that ESPN has no problem at all flexing New York Yankee games this Sunday night, I could see that as a possibility as well in which the the White Sox and Yankees get flexed into Sunday night baseball because the following day, that Monday the 17th, uh, is an off day right now for the Chicago White Sox before they head up to Minneapolis for a two-game series. So those are two dates on the calendar I'm looking at, Jim, that could be possibly flexed into Sunday night, Sunday, July 26th, and then Sunday, August 16th. Sounds good. I have no objections to that. Yeah, the Yankees, yeah, I wonder about the Yankees and White Sox having two nationally prominent games in a row. But then again, you know, when the Yankees and Red Sox went to London, you know, they, they had no problem playing those up. So especially given Iowa is going to be its own spectacle and people are going to be tuning in more for that than the teams involved. I mean, I imagine you could put the like Reds and Marlins in Iowa and yeah. people at least want to know what that looks like. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm trying to picture a Reds Marlins series in Iowa. Ah, oh, well, if you build it, if you build it, oh, as long as Iowa, well, good thing. Good news for Iowa. They're not blacked out from either of those markets. So they can at least watch Cincinnati Reds games and Miami Marlins games. Unlike the White Sox, which I just found out today are still blacked out in Iowa. <laughs> that game was blacked out. <laughs> That'd be terrible. Oh my gosh. That would be terrible. Hopefully that is not the case, but not Dan Hayes. Thank you so much for your question. Our next question. And I hope I don't screw up your last name, Jace, but it comes from Jace for And Jace is asking, what do Edwin Encarnacion and Steve Ciszek need to do to have their 2021 team options picked up? I think Ciszek needs to do more relative to his past than Encarnacion. Um, You know, Ciszek's pay actually goes up to 6.75 million uh, with a buyout. Uh, He's got, uh, um, you know, he's 
He has a history of fades, and that's partially because the Cubs ran him into the ground. So if the White Sox can avoid uh, or spread the workload among other right-handed relievers, then maybe they avoid that, and he finishes the season as strong as he starts it, and uh, that's not an issue. But you know, given the age thing and just the the history of starting strong and and, and, and flagging down the gate, then you know maybe that's a case where it's harder to get excited about paying him you know nearly seven million next year with Encarnacion. Given that he, you know, has 30 home run power and that he hits, you know, can draw, he might lead the team in walks or at least, you know, non-grand all division uh, and provide, you know, I'm thinking three, you know, 30 homers, 340 OBP. That's going to be tough for other uh, White Sox personnel to step in and provide on a projectable basis. So if he's around there, uh, then I think it becomes a no-brainer. And I think even if he's a bit below, you know, if he's got the the rate numbers where you want it, maybe you know he misses some time with an injury or such, given that he's in his later 30s, it's still pretty obvious to pick up just because that's the kind of deal, uh, I think, contract that can be traded. Uh, there's no buyout attached, just a simple one-year $12 million. You could probably move that around if you need be, you know, just for like a depth-for-depth depth move. So... Uh, now if he, you know, has a season where he hits like 240, 310 OBP and hits 25 homers, then that becomes probably harder to bring back, especially if, you know, there are other bats in the organization that can use the DH spot. So there's probably a thin line where it uh, starts you know, not making sense to retain him, but with no, no buyout. And I still don't really understand how that happened. Uh, no buyout for the Encarnacion option. Um, just seems like a, uh, Pretty simple math on just uh, you know what it costs to bring him back. Jace, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from one of our Patreon supporters, and that's Azinrec. And Azinrec is asking, Jim, during the Andre Dawson Classic over the weekend, the announcers noted the White Sox ace program was a particularly active pipeline of talent to HBCU teams. What makes this program so effective, and can it be replicated in other cities? I think other cities, or at least Major League Baseball, has wanted other cities to try to adopt it and try to figure out what's the, uh, uh, I guess, what's the secret recipe for how the White Sox do it. And I think it's probably, well, I imagine it's not harder than it looks, it's just very difficult, uh, just because I think the White Sox have a few advantages. One is the uh, continuity in the front office. You've had Kenny Williams there forever. Uh, you've had Kevin Coe there, who is the director of the ACE program there for a long time. And then you, the community relations people too have been there. So when you look at just how uh, how deep their contacts go, and especially, you know, for somebody like Kenny Williams, whenever you see the, the ACE program come through and they're signing their college scholarships, you know, he, he considers it, you know, very important to his job and a very fulfilling thing. And, uh, he's wanted the White Sox to be very visible in that regard. I think based on his background and even, even some ACE, uh, alums, at least one ACE alum has, uh, graduated into the front office and analytics role. So, you know, it's not just uh, baseball playing, but also baseball careers and, and being, uh, more visible in front offices. So that's uh, important as well. Um, also, you know, I think probably, you know, the just the demographics of the city themselves, the uh, Jackie Robinson West, you know, the, the, I guess the rise and fall, but I, the rise is what's more important than the fall, I think, when it comes to just uh, how deep the talent is, even if it's, uh, you know, maybe not in the neighborhood that uh, uh, they say it is, but at least, you know, when it comes to just uh, the, the pool of talent, it just seems like a, a larger pool of talent that's been... Uh, that's been collected and, and groomed and, and, and carried on you know, over the years 
to where other cities just might not be able to round up that kind of talent with, especially given how, uh, uh, yeah, how expensive youth baseball is. So there's probably just uh, infrastructure both at the you know, organized baseball level outside of the White Sox and also what the White Sox bring to it with the personnel they have there that just makes it, uh, it gives its own inertia and just allows it to carry year over year over year and uh, just becomes a viable path for athletes in at least a very uh, narrow area of geography where other cities can't quite do it. And the White Sox scouts use it as an opportunity to not only help teach and, and coach in some areas, but it, the program itself, because it's from 12 to 18-year-olds, also helps train White Sox scouts to be better at their job, understanding on how young kids develop. And in this upcoming draft class, you know Ed Howard IV is the shortstop from Mount Carmel, and he's part of the White Sox ace program, and he's the top prep shortstop in the upcoming Major League Baseball draft. And Ed Howard is going to be a first-round pick. If you read my first draft board on SoxMachine.com from Friday, he's number 10 on my draft board. And he is going to get a 2 to $4 million offer. A kid from the south side of Chicago. And I think it's because of this fantastic program that the White Sox have built up. And, you know, Corey Ray's prospect star has lost a little bit of its luster when he got drafted fifth overall by the Milwaukee Brewers. But when Ed Howard gets drafted in the first round, and now you're going to start producing high schoolers uh, to be first-round talents, then I think it just takes this to another level for the White Sox, where, yes, they are producing these star players, but the overall message is that they're still having 30 to 40, sometimes even up to 50 kids from this program going to play college baseball all over the country, whether it is the historical black colleges and universities or it's Big Ten schools like the University of Michigan or like Louisville, one of the top baseball programs uh, in the entire country. Or if Ed Howard decides to skip the Major League Baseball draft and go to college, he's committed to Oklahoma. It's been very impressive on the amount of kids that the Chicago White Sox have helped to get college scholarships. But now they're starting to take it to a new level where they're now producing first round talent. And I don't know if any, I don't think that was ever the end goal, Jim, or the end game for the White Sox to be able to do that. But that's how successful this program has been for them. Yeah, it's really impressive. And it would be nice to see the White Sox have a literally homegrown talent at some point in the mix. I mean, I mean, you know, as, as you mentioned, uh, the, the focus is on college scholarships first and getting them into college baseball. Um, you know, maybe they didn't didn't envision this being as successful as it is when it comes to just producing uh, the talent that shows up that quickly and, and, and to where you have a point where uh, a guy is a top 10 pick. But it's uh, it would be cool to see one of these guys come up, come through as like a White Sox, like the, the, the most literal of White Sox uh, uh, prospects or farmhands, whatever you want to call it, just, you know, all the way from, you know, 12 years old, just uh, basically in the right their backyard and come up and somehow get drafted by the White Sox, have all work out. That's basically storybook stuff. And you don't want to put too much pressure on any of these kids. And then, and, and imagine the White Sox might have maybe some reservations about doing it just because, uh, uh, you know, maybe there is a case where it is good for, uh, you know, somebody to see, yeah, you know, like somebody in that position to either explore college opportunities or, or go somewhere else and, and learn more about themselves. But it would be kind of cool just to see it come full circle like that. 
For our Patreon supporters, you already heard from Jim Callis about his thoughts about Ed Howard IV and where he could end up in the first round. So for those that are are non-Patreon supporters, if you do sign up to become a Patreon supporter after this episode, you can go back and listen to the Patreon version of the show, and Jim Callis breaks down his thoughts of where Ed Howard IV will land in the first round. But again, he's going to be one of those successful stories for Ace, and they had another successful class here. Uh, where they're sending so many teenagers to getting college scholarships, college athletic scholarships, and the White Sox continue to produce so many great athletes. And even if they don't make it into baseball, they're still getting an opportunity to get a college education. This is one of the, I think, the best things that any Major League Baseball team does, Jim, outside of what they do on the field, is the White Sox Ace program. Yeah, I can't think of anything that's really comparable in in terms of like I guess spreading the game to a community that's especially like you know demographics with the uh, baseball has lost, um, you know they're it, it's the most it's the case of I guess just teams you know we've seen Major League Baseball talk about it but not really do anything about it they don't hire uh, you know the 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 faces in the front office the faces in the dugout and coaching staffs don't reflect the rhetoric and the White Sox actually act without really playing it up and uh, I'm, I'm glad to see that they get recognized uh, for that on national broadcasts and thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for P.O. Sox again if you have a question or topic that you would like us to tackle in a future episode of the Sox Machine podcast follow us on Twitter we are at Sox Machine and also help support the show at patreon.com slash machine, in which not only will you receive opportunities to ask questions to our guests, like Jim Callis, where we have eight extra minutes for our Patreon supporters, but you also get an opportunity to ask additional P.O. Sox questions, in which we answer more than just three questions for the regular show. We usually end up answering six to seven, maybe sometimes eight questions for our Patreon supporters. So if you enjoy our writing and you enjoy the podcast and you want more from us, go to patreon.com slash machine to sign up today. Anything special coming from uh, for our Patreon supporters this week, Jim? Not yet. <laughs> I, mean, I, think I, was, I was thinking actually uh, my plan this week is to go over the new rules in the White Sox, but that'll be for everybody. Oh, good luck with that one. Uh, some of these <laughs> new rules. Yeah, we'll talk about that next week because I have a lot of questions about some of the, how, how some of these rules are going to work out. But for those that want to keep tracking for the Major League Baseball draft and you want to see on how everyone is progressing through the season, our Patreon supporters will have the opportunity to catch up on all the top draft prospects and I'll be doing little write-ups after every single weekend and also previewing the weekend coming and those will be released on Wednesdays for our Patreon supporters. So if you like the Major League Baseball draft and you want to keep tracking as far as the top prospects, another reason for you to help support us by going to patreon.com slash machine. And one more thing. So we're going to have a fantasy baseball league, 30 teams. We already have 20 teams signed up after the first week, Jim. Wow. So we got 10 spots open. If you want to participate in the first ever Sox Machine Fantasy Baseball League, 30-team league, sign up at SoxMachine.com. I'm sorry, sign up at Patreon.com slash SoxMachine. You have to, right now, in order to get a spot, you either got to be a $5 or $10 supporter. In a few weeks, if we still have some spots open, I'm going to make it available to the $2 and $3 tiers. 
But if you want to participate, again, go to Patreon, sign up to support us, either for the $5 or $10 tier. And then the post is already on Patreon, but I'll, I'll make sure everybody gets it again with the update on how many teams we have remaining. But we got 20 teams already signed up for our 30-team Fantasy Baseball League. What's the uh, what's the most teams you've ever played with in the Fantasy League? 12. So I'm already scared. <laughs> I, I did 16 one year back when I played, and that was a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, it's kind of chaotic, and that's why I'm giggling when I'm promoting this because I don't know what to expect from a 30-team fantasy baseball league, but I'm here for it. Let's do it. It'll be fun, and our Patreon supporters can sign up and participate. So, yeah, definitely do that if you are interested in being part of the 30-team fantasy baseball league. Well, I was thinking, like, uh, back on Southside Sox, there was the common refrain, nobody cares about your fantasy team. Yes. I kind of do. Or at least I care about the league. I'm I really want to see how these rosters break down. Yes, me too. <laughs> nobody liked playing the Southside Sox league because Jackie Hayes kept winning. Yeah, he had a dynasty. Yeah, he did. And when it wasn't even a keeper league. He just continued to win all the time. I swear. Ugh. Anyways, Jackie's not a, he's not eligible to play. Uh, <laughs> this fantasy league. But anyways, that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you to Jim Callis of MLB.com for joining us. And, of course, our fellow editor at Sox Machine, Patrick Nolan, to preview the Chicago White Sox bullpen. If you just discovered the Sox Machine Podcast, you can subscribe to the show in a number of ways. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Audioboom.com slash Sox Machine. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Breaking up is hard to do, but when it comes to your wireless carrier, you should have left a while ago. You're over the big three carriers. You deserve better. Xfinity Mobile. Now you can get unlimited with 5G included for just $30 a month on the nation's fastest, most reliable network. So break free from the big three and save with Xfinity Mobile. Take the savings challenge at XfinityMobile.com slash savings to see how much you can save when you get Xfinity Mobile and Internet together. Reduced speeds at 20 gigabytes per line. Most reliable based on Root Metrics U.S. report. Results vary, not an endorsement.